1: Welcome to a special
0: edition of the Zoom In podcast. Coming to you from the Design Matters event in San Francisco, hosted by Adobe and the AIGA. This week features a special interview by Sterling Group president and design icon, Debbie Millman. Her guest is the founder of McSweeney's, author, editor, and teacher, Dave Eggers. Their interview coming up after the break.
1: Photoshop CS has many new advanced features for animation, video, and web-ready graphics. Learn these techniques and much, much more with the Digital Media Training Series, DMTS. Our fully interactive training DVD features Adobe Certified Instructor Steve Weinrieb. The DVD comes complete with professional digital photos so you can work alongside our expert instructor to create stunning website imagery using Photoshop. The Digital Media Training Series (DMTS), the fastest, easiest way to learn Adobe software, guaranteed. Find us online at www.digitalmediatraining.com.
0: Debbie will be speaking with San Francisco's own Dave Eggers,
1: so please join me in welcoming the very amazing Debbie (laughs) Millman. a somewhat daunting introduction. My goodness, thank you so much. Um, It's so wonderful to be here in San Francisco. I really am so thrilled to be here. This is the first ever Design Matters Live. So I am your host for the evening. Please join me in welcoming Dave Eggers. Let's talk a little bit about you. Um, A question that I I often ask my guests on the radio is a question that I, I wanted to ask you. Um, and I know we talked about it ever so slightly. So what, what is your first memory of being creative?
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, you were going to. I asked Debbie if if she would tell me any of the questions that she was going to ask so that I didn't sound stupid like I just did because I didn't have an answer to your question. (laughs) This is why I told you to tell me. Did he
1: sound stupid? Um, uh,
0: Because I'm not good on the spot. But I. Debbie did tell me this one, so (laughs) this is why I have my backpack. I did find the uh, first thing I ever did that I can remember doing, which was a book I made when I was eight
1: called The Monster
0: Mishmash.
1: Wow. In
0: first grade. Author
1: and illustrator.
0: All, all of us, we all had, wow. this was in first grade, we all had to write and illustrate our own books and um, with my first grade teacher, Mrs. Wright, um, and uh, <laughs> who I still know and uh, she's doing well. Um, <laughs> she looks exactly the same. And uh, so, you know, this is a story of a, a kid that, Runs into a bunch of monsters and then they use him as a football and as a soccer ball and he has to go Oh, you want it. to hear? Yeah. All right. All right? One day I was playing with my friends and all of a sudden they all turned into monsters and they kept on changing. And the son here is saying, Yowie! Because I guess he's seen them turning into monsters. They turned into goblins, zombies, and all kinds of monsters. Then they asked me if I wanted to play football, and, oh boy, I said, no thanks. (laughs) But they dragged me over anyway, and every time they passed the ball to me, it bonked me on the head, exclamation point. They tackled me and stepped all over me anyway. At last, I was completely demolished, and now they asked me if I wanted to play soccer. Harry's wearing a cast and a bandage on his face. What Freud would
1: say about this. Yeah,
0: and they dragged me over again, and every time they kicked the ball... To me, it completely knocked me down. Should I keep going? He's about to go into the hospital. So after I was completely demolished for the second time, an ambulance came, and then 10 seconds later, I fell out. And he was like falling out the back of the ambulance. Remember that episode of The Simpsons where he keeps falling down? <clears throat> the monsters were still there, and I tried to run, but they got me. Then they played tennis with me. So here he is, just as the tennis ball. Then they played tennis with me. No, you don't understand. They used me for the ball. I don't know. keeps going beautifully illustrated, I have to say. Yeah, I got a little help from my mom. Um, <laughs> she was pretty good at drawing uh, figures, and I wasn't. I could only draw monsters at that point. I drew monsters all my childhood. But... Um, yeah, so I kept all the books that, you know, a couple of teachers along the way, you know, had projects where we would make books. And I think that, like, it totally stuck with me. It was then and then, again, in seventh grade, that we, were, we made it on a big board book and bound and, uh, it with either, you know, this was yarn and later with with those uh, silver Spiral. rings. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and um, so just that ability to make something real, And like it has the approximation of an actual book you could keep. And I've kept them for, you know, a million years now. So that realness and the tactility of it and the solidity and the permanence, that's what, that's sort of what we still do at, you know, at 826 Valencia. All the books, you know, the kids come in every day. They make a book. It's permanent. It has their name on it. And, um... So it, uh, and we're about to, the thing that we're finishing, and I was working on it before I got here, is that Alvaro Wave, our design director, puts these books together, but there's a school called Wallenberg um, uh, where all the students, not all the students, but about 70 of them wrote short stories for first graders. So they thought, well, what do first graders need to know, you know, like modern fables that taught a lesson and all right. that stuff. And the kids, the, the high schoolers took oh, it so seriously like, okay, I know what they need to know, you know? And so, Can you share what some
1: of the what, advice was? The
0: one that I attempted to illustrate, because I was commissioned to do one illustration that I failed at, and I ended up having somebody else do it, somebody good, and, um, <laughs> but it was called Zinderella. Zinderella. Yeah, um, by named Mona, and it was like Cinderella, but very modern, updated, and she wants to go to, you know, she has evil stepsisters, and father's sick, and the mother's left, and, and, uh, so there's a lot of sort of realism in there, but it's also sort of this fairy tale. and she wants to go to the prom. The prom's at a hotel downtown, you know? She sees like the captain of the football team or something, and he's a, she thinks that he's gonna fulfill her, and here's the twist. He's an asshole, and uh, <laughs> he rejects her for not being wealthy and pretty enough, and then she decides she doesn't need fulfillment from some guy. And she also doesn't need to be part of that stinky family anymore, so she moves away.
1: And this is first grade? <laughs> this is advice for first graders. I guess so. You
0: know. Start it early. Well, that's brilliant. These stories are incredible. And you have all these kids that, like, most of whom hadn't written more than a three-page paper, that age when, you know, when none of us do. We'd say, okay, we need 1,500 words, which is, you know, three, four pages. And, um, average length, 5,000 words, that they would write. And we wow. always had to edit it down, edit it down, to fill, fit into this book. And the finished book is, I don't know, 350 pages, hardcover, and each uh, story is illustrated by a professional illustrator. I don't know if there are any of you guys. Anybody here illustrate one of these? They're all from San Francisco. I thought maybe there's just a chance somebody here. Um, but uh, uh, they all illustrated them with, in consultation with the kids and you know. And the kids were their clients. And so uh, it's an amazing book, full color throughout and everything. But uh, uh, so look out for that.
1: Now, when you wrote, you, you wrote and illustrated this book as, as a young child, did you know then that you wanted to pursue a creative life? Did you know that you wanted to be a writer and a designer? Uh,
0: I only wanted to be an illustrator or a cartoonist until I was 20, I guess. And then that was the first time I really thought seriously about anything else. Uh, and it just, and it occurred to me when I just failed at this assignment, and I used to do cartooning, I used to do a lot of illustration in town. I just wasn't that good, you know? I wasn't good enough to do it, you know, and I, and I had a limited amount of things. I really knew how to draw well, I think, and so um, it was sad uh, to realize now, but that.
1: But you said, how did you realize that? What made you, you know? A lot of times I think people get very enamored with their own work, they fall in love with the work that they do. Yeah. What gave you that sense that you weren't good enough?
0: Oh, I don't I never liked anything I ever drew. I mean, it was always fell short, because that was the weird thing, and that's the difference, at least for me, in terms of design and illustration and, and painting, because if you don't get a likeness right away, or if it doesn't look the way you want it to, within a certain amount of time, you overwork it, it's gonna look terrible, and it'll never get there. But with writing, and, you know and design for me you can keep on wiping the slate clean or reworking it or it, it bears more drafts or it doesn't suffer from that overworking you know mm-hmm. where I used to work in oil and if you don't get it pretty soon, pretty early on it's going to look terrible and you can't you got to start over and um, so uh, I could never make it look on the canvas what it looked like in my head And, and it was just to... last week it happened again I just very frustrated, you know? It's like being grown up and you think you, you can play football or something, or you that you're fast when you're a kid. and mean, you, you're not fast, you know? And uh, somebody has to wake you up and say that no matter how good the wind feels in your hair when you're in first grade running the 440 or whatever, you're actually not fast. That was another deal
1: So how confident are you in your own judgment of what's good and what isn't good?
0: I'm pretty confident. I'm no. a really cold, I can get a really cold hard look on anything I do. So I know when it stinks usually. Um, If I give myself that distance, you know. So um, I knew that my first two attempts at this last illustration were bad. And I knew that from the silence from Alvaro and from my student client that it wasn't (laughs) thrilling anybody. So I want her to be happy with it and be really happy because she put in a lot of work. So we, uh, you know, assigned it to a much better illustrator and he did a great job. So that'll be the cover illustration. But yeah, you know, I always tell my students like, you know, the ability to self edit and know where you are and what your best work is and everything is is everything. You know, you gotta have that cold eye and that ability to be really self critical, I think, without being self loathing, which is a very fine line, right? Yeah. Well how
1: do you how do you know where you cross that one way or the other? Yeah, I don't know.
0: That's still a problem every day, isn't it? Um,
1: I have a, a, I found this area of McSweeney's website, and it's called Reader's Interview Dave Eggers. And I found a question Yep, yeah, McSweeney's <laughs> Reader's Interview Dave Eggers. And I, I liked it very much, and I, I wanted to ask you one of the questions that was posed to you in person. Um, but the question was unattributed. Whoever edits the site, I've never seen in this section, but I'm really? interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. readers, readers interview Dave Eggers. Um, so the editor actually was apologizing because he apparently lost the name of the person who wrote in the question, but they liked the question well enough to post it and okay. have him answer it. And so um, the editor writes about it in this way. A very nice person wrote this question, and then a sloppy editor lost that nice person's name, and the editor is very sorry. So. The interviewer is now very sorry in case the person who asked that question happens to be here and I am asking the question and, and not attributing it to you. So this is a question. Do you edit as you write? Do you vomit right and then go back and edit? How many drafts do you go through and how many readers do you trust to give you feedback? When do you know when you're done? Oh. So that's actually fine. I, I five remember questions. the vomit right thing. Okay. So <laughs> Good, see, you know I'm not making this up. That
0: is very similar. That's how I first I do a first draft as a vomit right for sure. Okay, I Put so it all right. down without looking at it again, um, and I'll just type until I stop. Okay. And um, so I don't edit as I go. Uh, rarely, I try to put a first down. I mean, it, it all comes back to painting for me. Like you do an underpainting or whatever that might be a little sloppy and. Maybe it's in the blue or whatever, and, and, um, and then you come back and you get a you know, look at it, turn it upside down, you turn it on the side, whatever, you see where you're at, and then you go from there if you need to adjust the composition or whatever before you go forward with the next layer. But So that's how I work with the writing, where throw it all down there, see what you've got, if it's worth anything, then go in and start editing the sentences. Maybe if the shape is good, then you can go in. but. I sort of zero in, circle by circle, getting more and more specific as I go, and then it's at least 20 drafts, I would think, mm-hmm. on average. Um, well, actually, you said after 20
1: drafts, you're just not the best judge of your own work. hmm and, and when do you feel like you become
0: a good judge? Well, at first, actually, I'll show some, I'll show a rough, rough draft to uh, a friend or my wife right away, just so I know I'm not wasting my time on something because. And they'll uh, tell
1: you, Dave, you're wasting your time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I got a lot of really
0: honest uh, friends and associates, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Because I have wasted a lot of time before. The editor of the website, John Warner, I had a whole book that I wrote after my first book that he told me to throw away, and then I did throw away. And I'm glad I threw it away. It was awful. Really? Yeah. What yeah. was it about? I don't know. Nothing. Really? nothing. Just nothing, yeah. So I threw that away, and... Um, I'm happy to do that. It's a relief, you know, to just sort of trust somebody, and uh, you know, you just feel like somebody saved you from incredible embarrassment. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, I uh, and then if you're on track, and then if it all, if you're, you know, you check in with people. I check in with people a lot. Okay, am I still on track? Am I still on track? And they'll say, yeah. And then at a certain point, you feel confidence in in where you're at and where you're going, and um, and then I'll show it to. Before I publish anything, it's probably 10 people, mm-hmm. and I'll target who I want to like that, or who I want to understand it. I say, if, and sometimes it's former students, I like to hit them up a lot, you know, they're in college or whatever now, but I say, if this person doesn't like it, I'm screwed. So, or if this person doesn't connect at some point with it, then it's I'm, I haven't succeeded. And, uh, or I go to old high school English teachers, you know, one of my... English teachers was my main reader for what is the what to find out if I was on track because he was coming from a very, you know, he didn't know I was working on a book about Sudan, so he's a cold reader, and um, so uh, it depends on the thing. You target certain people that you want to to understand it.
1: Has your writing, the way in which you approach writing and the actual act of writing changed over the course of your four books? Yeah. In what way?
0: Um, I've just gotten a lot more patient. And um, like my second book, I didn't get, I didn't have enough distance from it. I, and this is the one that you threw away? No. The second one I published, uh, Velocity.
1: Oh, okay. So that was between the second and the third book that you threw yeah. away.
0: Okay. Velocity was an extension of the final chapter of the book I threw away. Okay. So um, that was the, the whole plot of Velocity was just the last of like 13 chapters. And then I just kind of expanded it. But um, yeah, that one I released... I've sent it to press, I guess, eight days or something after i finished writing it. Um, I mean, I was checking it along the way and rereading it along the way, but I'm always still working on it until the last minute, but that one I was working on too much. Um, so each of the first five editions were very different. Mm-hmm. Like, I kept changing it as I went along because I felt like I hadn't, the paint was still wet on it. Um, <laughs> so there's all these different editions. Out. When, do
1: you, when do you know
0: that an idea that you have is before they? Um, These days, I I think about a book for about a year before I would engage in actually writing it. Mm -hmm. So I've got two that I'm thinking about right now. My my favorite living writer is a guy named Edward P. Jones, and he wrote a book called The Known World. Anybody read this book, The Known World? A couple people? Um, I urge it upon you. I will pay you. Pay for it for you and send me a bill at 826 Valencia um, because it's a book that a lot of people have heard of but not everybody's read. It won every prize, won the, the Pulitzer, everything else, but it hasn't been read as well as it should. And I think that maybe the subject matter is daunting. For a lot of people it seems like it will be depressing, but it's incredibly beautiful. But this guy, he was working like a, you know, sort of a not such a great desk job analyzing financial articles for some reason. And, uh, and he walked around with his book in his head for 10 years before he put a word down, nothing. And then finally he had it all figured out, every aspect of it, every you know, twist and turn, he knew every character inside and out, like you'd know members of your family at that point. And, um, and then he wrote it in three months. And, um, and it reads, it's a masterpiece. It's just there's not a word out of place, it all comes out whole as the best books do, I think. And um, The Known World, although all of his books are great, he just had a new story, uh, story collection called all, all Aunt Hagar's Children. Um, but I would read that third before Lost in the City, or after Lost in the City. And
1: But first, The Known World.
0: Known World, okay. yes. No one will be disappointed. If you find the first 80 pages slow, keep trudging through. So,
1: so you had one of these Situations with your book that I think any creative person hopes for in their life, which is success. Yep. You publish something, you put something out there, and all of a sudden, everybody wants to read it, everybody wants to understand it, everybody wants to be a part of it, everybody wants a part of you. How did that feel?
0: Uh, it was really uncomfortable uh, with that book. Because that book was my first book was designed for a small readership. I had a cartoon in the city called Smarter Feller for a while.
1: That changed title several times too.
0: Yeah, that's a long story. <laughs> um, but um, so when I when I wrote that book, I was pretty familiar with those readers. I would have garage sales, and people would come and bring me melons. And if they brought me a melon, I would give them a free drawing. Things like that, you know, and so I met a lot of Picasso sounds, used to do it's that It's a true too. story. What? Yeah. Picasso used to do that. With a mouth? Well,
1: he used to go to a restaurant and pay them in a drawing.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, right. So, okay, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I did a lot of stuff trying to, because I was really, I liked that audience a lot. I liked those, the people that read it and liked it as, as, uh, as ugly and uh, hacky as a cartoon. It was, but um, I think they felt bad for me and uh, they read it and, um, so it was a nice five years that I did this cartoon, and I was just really familiar with that readership. And um, so when I wrote that book, I and the publishers and my friends that were in the book all expected that same readership, whatever it is, 5,000, 10,000 people in San Francisco. And um, so they printed 10,000 copies of the book, and that was it. And, uh, and all my friends who had agreed to be in it were like, yeah, sure, you can print my phone number, you know, which, you know, I had five. Did of my, you have to
1: get permission from Puck, by the way?
0: No, okay. no, uh, because it's my account of meeting him, so you don't need permission. But um, <laughs> you guys remember Puck? Yeah, um, met him. Everybody knows that Dave Not tried out for the real me. world
1: San Francisco, right? That's a
0: stretch, thing I tried out. Yeah, I guess I did. Uh, so, uh, but uh, yeah, and so I had my friends' phone numbers in there. I got their permission to put five of their real phone numbers in the first edition working phone numbers, we all thought it was really funny, you know? Like, wouldn't that be funny, no one's done that before. And, um, and then when the book sold more than the, you know, the, the print run, um, then everybody got it. We all freaked out because uh, people were using the phone numbers and, uh, you know, a lot of slumber party crank calls and stuff like that. And, um, and so, and a friend of mine just changed her number like a year and a half ago, like she had a lot of calls over the years. But, what would
1: she say to people when they call?
0: Well, she would chat with them. She's just very <laughs> outgoing, you know. She was, she was really which,
1: which character?
0: Um, her name was Kirsten, um, and uh, she was you know she's just a happy person. She's happy to talk to people. But um, so she changed her number. But uh, you know they they you yeah. know they had to tell me after a while that I changed all the names. I took out the phone numbers every edition. Because nobody, they said, no offense, Dave. We just never thought anyone was going to read it, you know? <laughs> but you got a
1: pretty good advance, didn't you? I mean, wasn't there a sense that this might do something important? I
0: think that there was an initial blush of optimism from Jeff Klosky, the editor. Because I just gave him, it was based on some notes I gave him. It wasn't based on any formal proposal. And, um, but then once I finished it, No one liked it at the company, really. The sales reps hated it. No one, there were no orders, like almost no orders for the book. And um, they could not move the books at first or get them into stores. And Jeff actually had me at the office signing book plates, thousands of them, trying to think, like, well, maybe we can get them remainder, you know, the sales in the remainder bin if they're signed, you know, like try to get rid of them that way. You have that sticker autographed copy. Yeah, we were trying to do anything, and then... um, I felt so bad for him because I knew he was going to get in a lot of trouble, you know, to have this failure. And uh, and then at some point it just turned around, I guess. And uh, and then it was very uncomfortable when when uh, because I hadn't written it for a mass audience. It was very specific and very uh, untethered. And I wouldn't have written it that way had I known that more than my little cadre of friends were going to read it.
1: How would you have done it differently?
0: Oh, million things! I can't read that book. People remind me of things that are in that book. And I'm horrified that I revealed them, or you know, it's horrifying. Yeah. And you would have done it differently. Yeah, it would have been fiction for one thing, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I tell everybody because I teach memoir writing to adults at 826, and I always tell everybody to fictionalize that sucker. You know, like to, it's going to live longer than you are, so. Um, there's uh, little to be gained from, uh, you know, writing it as uh, as nonfiction. so... Um,
1: what did you think about the whole million little pieces, James Fry, memoir-ish situation?
0: Um, it was just, I think it's the pressures of that, of the world, you know, he tried to sell it as a novel, would have made a good novel, I hear, I haven't read the book, but I people like it, you know, and... Uh, why can't it be a novel? But then he couldn't sell it as a novel, so he sold it as a memoir. And that's, it's not entirely his fault. It's the pressures of the marketplace and how they like the memoirs now, you know? And um, it's too bad, because through the history of literature, usually one's first book was a semi-autobiographical novel. This is the tradition, you know? And But now, you know, you can do a lot better financially, I guess, if you, uh, if, if it's, if it's, If you can say it's absolutely true or whatever people readers want that which i don't have any judgment on it maybe that's okay but he should have just said what he was doing because i was when i was trained as a journalist in college like i was so obsessive about you can't put anything within quotation marks unless you have it on tape you know so i had to have all these caveats at the beginning of my book about how i was going to reconstruct conversations and how this was fictional because I was obsessive about revealing every little thing that I had to do to make it a, a, a regular book and readable and compelling, so um, it's the same reason why the uh, what is the what is called a novel. I mean, it's largely true. It's just that we want dialogue, and you can't have dialogue if you don't have it on tape. That's my opinion. So,
1: now let's talk about the pressures of the marketplace for a moment. Having started McSweeney's essentially on your own you are the arbiter, the decider, the person that has the last call in terms of what you bring to market. Now, I know that initially some of your books were only sold in independent bookstores because you couldn't sell on Amazon and so forth, but how has the pressures of the marketplace influenced the way that you publish the books that you publish?
0: Um, It hasn't. No, um, we're under we're under that all that radar for the most part. The average print run for anything we do is for a novel would be like 10,000, 7,000, something like that. And almost all of those are sold in independent bookstores still, because nobody else wants them. You know, we wouldn't exist without the indies and and, uh, and their willingness to support us and take a flyer on some of the stuff we put out and. Um, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to sell a thing without those guys. And most of those 7,000, you know, they get taken care of with, with independent storage and then there's not much left for the chains. So we don't do much that the chains want, usually. Um, I, I don't know Is that a good people? thing? Do you feel good about that? Do you wish yeah. they had a broader audience? No. Well, I think, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we can't afford to print that many copies of the average book either. We don't have any capital. You know, so, um, so it all works out fine. Like, it's all a break-even thing. I mean, we've lost money for years now. Um, and uh, so we don't have the money. Like, this has been a huge hassle to try to print what is the what because um, we don't have any money to print the books. So we had to take out loans with the publisher the and all that stuff. Well, this is the first time we've actually, you know, needed to reprint quickly on anything. So um, that was nice, I guess. But. Usually we're just ensconced in a nice little comfortable small publishing world where the, we know how many copies are usually going to sell. The bookstores know how many. We have you know first time authors or authors that we've rescued from you know their innovation. Nobody else wanted. Get, yeah, and, and then we know about yeah. what we're going to do. 7,000 copies we sell them, and we try to give as many back as much back to the author, and then we then we go home. That's about it. We don't we don't flirt that much with the. Any of the cha- we, don't, we don't have any ability to do it. We don't we don't have the money to buy the space in the chains. You know, and that's some Well, looking back coming. on
1: on the popularity and the success of a heartbreaking work of, of staggering genius, do you now look back and think, my God! I mean, that was that that was it took over the world for a while.
0: Uh, it was really horrible uh, because uh, <laughs> I get embarrassed seeing my face anywhere or seeing my name anywhere. You know, and. Um, So then it's out of your control for a while. And um, so that's why with the next book, uh, we only printed a certain amount of velocity Mm -hmm. to make sure that it didn't get out of control. And uh, that it was just in certain, I mean, those were only sold at about 450 stores. And um, it was, you know, you could deal with that. And it didn't, it wasn't, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like when it's your name or your person and, I think that you need to control some sense of, you know, yourself and to keep sane. Um, and you know, with a big company, they have obligations, or once they have something that they feel like can, they can keep selling, then it's not about the human anymore, it's exactly, it'll just keep rolling, and uh, it's very uncomfortable uh, uh, to be that commodity or whatever, mm-hmm. you, however you want to put it. Um, and you can't blame them for wanting to sell more of something that they think that they can sell, but. Uh, It just wasn't, I realized that I had a limit to where what I was personally comfortable with.
1: There's a quote in in heartbreaking work that I, I wanted to ask you about. You wrote, if you don't want anyone to know about your existence, you might as well kill yourself. You're taking up space, air. Sorry, that, to, sorry if I didn't
0: Is that, who's saying that in a book? See, this is why I'm horrified by that book. Like, everything, every time anyone, I see anything, I think Dave I is saying, to, Dave
1: in the book is saying.
0: Uh, no, I think he's saying it for, like, effect, isn't he? Or is he really saying that? I don't know. Well, that, It's terrible. I, I don't you want to just kick that guy in the head, like, <laughs> over and over? Yeah, that's why, yeah. I try to stay clear from, from, of that book. Right, but it was. But it was about the rawness of it. I knew when I was writing it that it was going to be raw and that that was maybe why I was doing it and trying to capture something, you know, like that sort of wildness that you feel at a certain age. And, you know, you're but sort I of... I think anybody
1: can relate to that. Really? I mean, if they don't feel like they're doing something that contributes or something with meaning or something that can be remembered, you know, why, why participate?
0: Yeah, I guess. I just wouldn't have phrased it that way, you know, like that's a... Uh, way too many experiences with actual death and suicide to uh, have phrased it that way. So, I, um, yeah, it's just a rash kind of young person's thing to say, I guess. And, uh, but, you know, college kids that read the book seem to understand the book or identify with it. I feel like it's pretty young and horrifying, but uh, I don't know.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about McSweeney's. I've, I've read the following descriptions of McSweeney's. It's a universal community, a literary clique, an indie publishing empire. Um, any of them, do you feel, are accurate descriptions? How would you describe them?
0: Um, we yeah. have six people that work in a really disgustingly ugly office that we <laughs> have, don't know how to decorate. We're all slob, and very few of us had any experience before doing this. Our, president or publisher, or I don't know, we're switching titles all the time, Named name Barb was a friend of mine from high school, and mm-hmm. I said, Barb, we want to try to work the books on this company, and she said, okay, and, um, and Eli Horowitz, our managing editor, started out as an intern slash carpenter, uh, <laughs> we were building uh, 826 Valencia, like, he built the fish tank area and some <laughs> other stuff, you know. And uh, in the pirate store. In the pirate store is yeah. in front.
1: And in Brooklyn, it's the superhero store yeah. in front of the school.
0: Yeah. So, you know, Eli and I used to just talk about books while we were working and trying to get the space set up. And I just realized you knew a lot about books. And um, when we had room for, for money for an editor, he was the first hire. But we have no clue what we're doing. Like every other <laughs> day, we're reminded of how little we know. Um, but, um, you know, uh, uh, so I don't know if any of those, I don't know if those are accurate to whoever, uh, I'm not one that can say what we are. All we're trying to do is, uh, the only thing we do know is that we need to keep things small so that we can keep them the way we want to do them. Mm-hmm. So when we started, so when the, like, the Believer, our monthly started up, you guys saw this uh, thing. Um, I designed that template, in court point off. <laughs> and court uh, 4.0, but it's much better in InDesign, and uh, everybody else is still on work, I'm the first one to move to an upgraded computer that won't do the system nine. But um, I designed it so that the whole magazine could be maintained by one guy. So this was a former intern, Andrew Leland, who uh, he went back to Oberlin, he was a senior, he said, if a job opens up, let me know. Don't let my being in college, you know, preclude me from being considered. So when we thought we were gonna put a monthly together and I figured out, you know, okay, well Barb did some numbers, and my wife and Heidi Julavits were the editors. We were all talking. We figured out we, maybe we could do it. Um, we knew that the managing, the design, the copy editing, all the art, everything had to be done by one person, because otherwise it, there's not enough money. You know, and we knew we didn't want to take ads, so um, so we called up Andrew and said there is a job, but you got to drop out right now. And uh, <laughs> so he did, and he's well, you know. I, we didn't force him to do it, obviously, but uh, he wanted to do it. He's been happy to do it, and he does everything. He—it's just a template. He takes care of everything else, and Alvaro does the covers every every month. Just plays with the template. So, but the, our ability to publish that monthly without any ads um, is because we keep it absolutely tiny and to a minimum, you know, and the, no overhead. And everybody has to know how to do everything. So everyone right. in the office knows how to design. Everybody in the office knows how to manipulate photos, write a press release, write, copy edit, whatever, because otherwise we'd be screwed. Uh, or we wouldn't be able to do it the way we wanted okay.
1: to do it. I read in New York Magazine that you said that whether doing books in hardcover or putting in every bell or whistle we can, vellum, different paper stocks, that stuff interests me just as much, sometimes even more than the words on the page. So, Why, you don't think you said that? I don't
0: know, I say so many dumb things, I'm sorry. I've been saying lots of dumb things today.
1: Um, Um, I just was wondering, design seems really important to you, obviously you've been um, acknowledged as somebody that's really interested and a big fan of design. Obviously the work was in the Cooper Hewitt design triennial and the last triennial. Um, I can show one of the issues here, one of my favorite issues, McSweeney's 19, which actually was printed in a cigar box. Um, Tell us about why you feel design has been such a a big part of the work that
0: you do. Um, Well, it started because I was a designer for years here. Um, That's how I made my living for, I guess, about six years. Just doing, I was no good. Um, I did temp work all over the city. I did uh, anything that anybody would pay, mostly stuff for the Chronicle Promotions Department. Did you also
1: redraw maps? Topographic work, or is it? Or am I just uh, wrong about what the word typography means? Not T-Y-P,
0: T-O-P. I did, yeah, I did something in McSweeney's 6 where I rewrote all the names and places on a okay. map and had them okay. weird words and stuff, I guess. But, you know, I figured out enough how to design and put books together or whatever so that um, I was interested in, in it, and I got a little bit better as the years went on. And um, So you're really self-taught. Yeah, I never... I, you know, I, I roomed with some designers in college and I was in the art department. I was in the painting department, but I didn't take any classes. I was not neat enough. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I got a slob and and my designer friends were so good and so, you know, I don't know. They were I I just didn't I didn't even bother to take a class because I knew I would be laughed out of it. I was a slob. So, and I was a slob until the first issue of McSweeney's when I first figured out how to apply what I like about type and how I like things to look. And studying old Bibles and old pamphlets and center justification and, you know, and working with, and I thought, and I was into the idea of a constraint. So we started working with just one font, Garamont 3, which is pretty much what we've done 97% of everything we've done is one font. And just trying to use that constraint and black ink and white paper and say, all right, what can you do with just that? What if we threw away all images, everything else, and just sort of went with that? And um, so because of that constraint, I guess I became a better designer for the first time. And, um, And then it just became a way to honor the words, to dignify the words, to make them permanent, to try to get them read by as many people as possible. And every issue of McSweeney's changes in some way, both because we like to experiment with the form, and to say what hasn't been done for a while, what kind of old printing technique can we resurrect, who hasn't done a cigar box. The new issue is uh, magnets. So the three booklets are held, you know, are bound in with magnets, you know, because we... And I do you,
1: you come up with all of these ideas yourself?
0: Yeah. Oh, no, not always at all. It's always a collective. Like somebody, um, a local designer named Elizabeth Carey's I think years ago said, what about magnets? And then Eli went to our printer and said, can you do magnets? So that's these booklets stick in with magnets. And so what um, we think, if we make the package beautiful in some way, or permanent, or care about the craft and the tactility of it, then it'll stay longer, it'll exist longer, the words inside will be honored, then maybe they'll be read. So that's the designer, that's our task, is try to you know uh, give as much dignity uh, and permanence to the words. I guess. And so the more you, more time and craft you put into that, I think the better off, the better, you know, the, the words are served, I guess.
1: What do you hope for the future?
0: I hope that we can keep, I mean, when I think of our little entity a couple miles away, you know, I just hope that it stays just like it is. Like, I'm really happy with what we're doing, about the size of things. We're, I think that we're all happy with the work we're putting out. Um, there's a guy back there, Chris Ying, who's our managing editor of a new series called Voice of Witness, oral histories that illuminate human rights abuses around the world. We're trying to get that going. Um, just there's a designer here, uh, Eric Hyman, we're trying to get, going to ask him to redesign our series because I did it, but it was, doesn't look good. Um, so I hope that that works out well, you know, Great. and that that can get out there and that we'll continue to do it. We just feel very lucky that we exist, that we're able to do it the way that we wanted to do it without too many compromises. We, we were right in that scale means everything, you know, in terms of keeping it personal and keeping it uh, the way that you want to, you know, and among friends and, and with the integrity that, you know, you value, so everything is sort of scale and what you're, and having your goals within a certain, with parameters that are rational and um, realistic and humane, you know? So, uh, so far it's working out. We just don't want to blow it, you know? and uh so, as long as we stay on our present course, I think I'd be very happy to uh do exactly how we're doing it for the next, and little growth here and there, you know, maybe a little d v d thing here and there, whatever it else it is but but slowing down a little bit, is that is that good? It's great, I gotta Thank get you. Uh, new shoes one of these days, does that <laughs> help? Yeah, um, is it, are we done? I think so. Hey, uh, thanks you guys for, I don't know if I, it's, it's really an honor to be here at, at Adobe and to be talking to designers at all, and I, I say this just because I'm still learning all the time and I, and I uh, whenever we work and we shop out things to real designers like, I'm always like, oh my God, I just don't know anything. And every so often, we get lucky with something, or we shop something out. Like Michael Kupperman did this entire thing. All of our best things were shopped out. Chris Ware, issue 13, whatever. And every so often, Eli and I will get lucky with something. But um, anyway, thank you for, um, for, for coming uh, and uh, listening to me battle. Thanks,
1: Dave. Thank All you right, so much. A lot.
0: Zoom In welcomes your feedback and story ideas. Write to us at zoomin at magnetmediafilms.com. This podcast is a production of Zoom In Online and Magnet Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.